will please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We are still in the beginning of our new sermon series and this letter to the church written by the Apostle John called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And our passage of study this morning is going to be verses 4 through 8, still in the introduction of this great epistle. Roman, I'm sorry, Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word to his church. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, this morning, would you help us to see Jesus for who he really is, for how he exists now on his heavenly throne, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Lord Almighty. Open our eyes that we may behold his majesty. We pray in his name. Amen. If you were given the task to write a letter to someone who needed to be encouraged, someone that you knew who was scared or, or troubled or depressed uh, or who was down and out, what would you write to them? How would you begin your letter to encourage them? What types of things would you say in order to lift up their spirits and to bring them out of their sadness? and their fearfulness, and to try to brighten their day. How would you begin your letter? Well, that's where this letter begins here. The revelation by the Apostle John given to the churches that were throughout the ancient providence of Asia. It was probable that John was writing to the church during his time that was under the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian was known as a ruthless dictator, uh, as many of the emperors were during this time. And in order to establish his authority, uh, Domitian set out to deify his family and declare that he and his fathers and his brothers and all the Roman emperors were in fact gods. They were Lord and God. He sought out to deify them. His father, Nero, was known for 
intensely persecuting Christians under his reign, and he promoted terror attacks against those who followed Christ. The early church father, Tertullian, actually named Nero as the first persecutor of the Christians because he didn't like the fact that they were beginning to call someone else their Lord and their God and their ruler, King Jesus. And so the question that the early church was facing during this time of John and his writing was what were Christians to expect under Domitian's rule and his reign? Would he ramp up persecution against Christians? And so you can imagine that the early church during the time of John's writing, that they were scared, they were fearful, they were worried what was going to happen to them. And so to a church that was in this predicament, to Christians who were scared and worried, what type of encouragement would be useful for them to hear? What could John possibly write to them that would make them think that everything was going to be okay and that they would be safe and that they had nothing to worry about? I believe it was this. I believe what the Apostle John was trying to say to the early church is that Domitian is not in charge. Jesus is. Jesus is the king. He is the king and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the one who possesses the eternal power over everything and everyone. And so that's how John begins his letter here in this introduction, in this greeting. By looking to Jesus, by pointing his readers toward the Lord Jesus Christ, by reminding his brothers and sisters in Christ of his day to look to the Lord Jesus, who is the Lord God Almighty who is above all the powers of this world, whose power supersedes anything and everything that we could possibly imagine. Indeed, this is what the whole book of Revelation is about. What the whole book of Revelation is encouraging us to do is to look to Jesus, as John will proclaim, as the saints in heaven say in Revelation chapter 5, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Something like 11 times in Revelation, John recounts in his vision, in these visions that the Lord Jesus gave him, how he would look and he would see the Lord Jesus Christ reigning gloriously, who conquers over all of his enemies and conquers all of our fears. And that is the reality that he wants the church to see even now in the midst of their trials and tribulations. That's what this book, this letter does. It causes us to look to Jesus, to look forward to his second coming, to see him in his eternal reign that is secure. But this letter is not just a letter for the church enduring John's time. It's a letter for the church of all ages. If you notice there in verse 4, again, we see the apostle identify himself as John, the one who is writing this letter, and the recipients being the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is not the, the continent of Asia that we would think of today that would compromise China and other countries, but this would be the ancient Roman province of Asia, which would be today like modern day Turkey. And so why just seven churches? Why does he say to the seven churches? 
were there just seven churches at this time? Well, definitely not. We know that from the scriptures and from other ancient writings. But this number seven is important. This number seven will show up something like 49 times in the book of Revelation. And the number seven is certainly a very important number in all of scriptures. If we think about the seven days that completed creation, uh, all those type things. And so this is a very important Bible number, the number seven, that means fullness or completeness or wholeness. And so, yes, there were probably seven churches in these seven cities that John will name later on in this letter. But these seven churches that he was writing to would have been representative of the global church at large during John's time. And so John is writing to the church, all the churches who proclaim the name of Christ. And so here the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who was ordained by Christ himself to build his church on this earth through the teaching of the apostles, he has some very important words for the church, for the church today, for believers of all time, for the church of every age. And so what this opening greeting does is that it points us to Jesus, to Jesus who is the Lord God Almighty. And that's what the apostle wants to do as this letter would have been read to the early church and even indeed as we read it this morning, to look to Jesus, a church that is suffering, a church that is being persecuted, doesn't need to be told to just try harder or to look to the stars or to pray the rosary or anything like that, but to look to Jesus. And so in this grand opening of this epistle, we're called to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus by looking at three things. The first is we'll look at who Jesus Christ is. Secondly, we'll look at what he has done. And third, we'll look at what he is going to do. The first is we're to be encouraged by looking at who Jesus Christ is. And the apostle is going to do this by giving Jesus certain titles and showing his authority through these titles in this opening here. There's several titles that John assigns to the Lord Jesus Christ that represent who he is as the Lord God Almighty. Look there in verse 5. He's described, the Lord Jesus is described as the, the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness and they came to bring truth. He never faltered in his wit- witness. Even when he suffered, even before Pontius Pilate, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus answered him and said, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Even then, Jesus was the faithful witness. John also proclaims that he was the firstborn from among the dead. Not that he was the firstborn, first one to ever be risen from the dead, but he was much like the first fruits. He was the example, the, the archetype, the, the prototype, the representative of all those who are in him who one day will experience. Because death no longer has mastery over him or dominion over him. He has conquered sin and death. And so his resurrection will one day be like our resurrection. As the firstborn from among the dead, we read read earlier in Colossians, 
that he is now the one who is preeminent over all. And then John goes on to say there in verse 5, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Earthly rulers will try to dominate and destroy Christians. But Jesus is the ruler of them all. His dominion is universal and eternal. Perhaps you read this past week, just as I did, that the Chinese government destroyed a very large evangelical megachurch in the country of China. One news source stated that this action underscores the long-standing tensions between religious groups and the officially atheistic Communist Party that strives for complete political and social control. Basically, that's a politically correct way of saying that the Chinese government wants the Christians to know that they are in control and not their Jesus. And so they destroyed a multi-million dollar building. What comfort can there be for these Christians in China or in Iraq or Syria facing this type of intense pressure and even persecution from government-controlled forces? What could possibly bring them comfort to know that everything is going to be okay? It's the same as the Apostle John points his readers to. It's that Jesus is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Later in Revelation, John proclaims the power of the Lord Jesus by stating that the evil forces will come to make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. This is the type of hope that Christians need facing this type of trouble and persecution. Then John goes on to declare that the Lord Jesus Christ is, and the Lord Jesus himself declares, verse 8, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. This is a phrase that will show up many times in the book of Revelation. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. To show that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega is a saying that He is the beginning, He is the end. That everything is between the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus is sovereign over all. He is the Alpha and that He is the Creator. He is the Omega and that He is the Consummator or, or the Completer. He is sovereign over all, sovereign over the past, sovereign over the present, sovereign over the future. He is the eternal one, and that is what is meant when he says that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. This harkens us back to that interesting name that God gave to Moses when he revealed himself into the burning bush. When Moses said, who are you? And who am I to tell my people who you are? And God says, you tell them that I am. I am. What God was saying here is that he is the eternal one. He is the all, the one who has always existed. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And the connection here that Jesus is trying to state is that he's the Lord God Almighty who always was from the very beginning. He is Yahweh God. And so what is the purpose of this 
grandiose introduction about Jesus? Why does John go to such lengths to tell the church about who Jesus Christ is? He wants to remind them and remind us too that we do not worship a puny and wimpy God. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the one who is and who was and who is to come. And so this knowledge that John wants to build up his church with about who Jesus is and how great he is is important because that will produce great faith and great praise in those who believe and who trust in Jesus Christ by faith. And this means that all of of your life circumstances, the sicknesses and trials and tribulations and family drama and government pressure that we may face, none of these things are in control. Jesus is. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so what about you right now who are suffering? You who are scared. You who are worried. You who are stressed out. What should you do when you find yourself like these early Christians, afraid and pressured? This is where we need to be reminded of who Jesus is. We must look to him, the one who is above all and in all, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the one who is sovereign over all. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is who Christ is. That is who Jesus is. That is who... John is calling his readers to look to. But then secondly, he wants to show them what Christ has done, remind them of what Christ has done, his deeds. And we see those in the next few verses and really scattered throughout this passage. He begins by saying, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This grace and peace is a very customary and normal greeting during these ancient letters you would read something very similar in Paul's different epistles. And this, this grace and peace is, is chock full of, of instruction and, and encouragement for the believers. Grace being the very source of our salvation. Grace, that free, unmerited favor of God towards sinners who deserve His displeasure. And then peace. Peace being the very nature of our salvation, that shalom, a deep abiding peace that can only come from God who has brought this peace to us. And so what is John doing here in this opening? He's not only telling them to look to Jesus, but he's reminding them of the gospel. He's saying, remember the gospel, remember God's favor toward you who did not deserve it. Remember his peace, the smile of God on the heart of a believer who has been reconciled before God. And this grace and peace, it's complete, it's, it's Trinitarian. Look there in verse 4 how the Trinitarian grace of peace is mentioned here. It's grace from God the Father who has provided it. It's grace and peace from the Holy Spirit who administers it. It's grace and peace from the Son who has guaranteed it. 
And we see there when he says the seven spirits that are before the throne, again, that's to be interpreted as the Holy Spirit. The seven being this wholeness and completeness, the, the, the whole and complete way in which the Holy Spirit administers the grace and peace of God. And then John, who is known by scholars as the apostle of love, he mentions Jesus' love for sinners. Look there in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What greater agape love is there than what Jesus did for sinners by freeing us from the power of sin and death, by shedding his own blood? So what John again is reminding them of here is saying, look to Jesus, remember what he has done for you. He has loved you. He has set you free. And so what is the answer to our pain, to our suffering, to our weakness, to our sadness, to our fears, to our broken marriages, to our broken relationships, to our broken world? It is the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has freed us from our sins by his blood. It is the truth that Jesus can heal a broken heart. And heal a broken world. And so we must look to what he has done. By freeing us from our sin. By his blood shed on the cross. And so we're to be encouraged by who Jesus is. We're to be encouraged by what Jesus has done. And finally we are to be encouraged. By what Jesus is going to do. And we see here a foretaste of his coming. Look there in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We've all been told at one point or another to keep our chin up. Maybe a coach or a friend has come alongside us when we were discouraged or sad and told us to, hey, lift your chin up. Perhaps that's not half bad for advice for Christians, but it's not just supposed to be an encouragement to believe in yourself or trust in yourself or search your own heart or anything like that. It's a reminder to look up and to look to Jesus. And so John reminds his readers that Jesus is coming again. And that when he comes again, every eye shall see him. And as we sang earlier, he'll be clothed in dreadful majesty. It will be such a a glorious and majestic coming that we will want to cry as Isaiah and say, I am undone. We will want to die. It will be so glorious. And there will be no mistake at his coming. There will be no guess that he has arrived. He'll be coming on the clouds in majesty and in wonder and in brightness and in glory far beyond anything we could ever imagine. This is exactly what the angels told the disciples would happen in Acts chapter 1, right as Jesus ascended into heaven. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood before them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come on clouds, power, glory. So we must remember that we will see him again. Every eye shall behold him. The Bible does not speak of a secret or invisible coming of Jesus. There is no secret rapture where someone's going to be whisked away right in front of you unknowingly. Jesus' return will be such that every eye will see him. Even those who don't know him, even those who have rejected him, all will see him. And so the question for us is this morning, will you mourn or will you rejoice at his coming? Will it be a glorious day for you or will it be a dreadful day? To them that love and know Jesus, oh, what a glorious day. The return of our King will be a glorious and wonderful and the most enriching thing that we could ever imagine. But to those who do not know Him, what an awful day that will be. As the Scriptures say, they will well on account of Him and mourn at His coming. For they will be undone in their sin. And there will be no protection. There will be no hiding. There will be no guaranteed without the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we say to all this? What response can we give to this opening, magnificent opening of these, the words of this letter? What can we say? But as John said, Amen. Amen. Truly, truly, this is trustworthy and dependable news. That God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in times of trouble. Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Lord God Almighty. How great is our God. And so while we wait, while we look, while we fix our eyes on Jesus, may we be found worshiping Him, serving Him as His kingdom of priests as He's called us to here in His Word, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as God Almighty. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, what, what wonderful and, and majestic and awesome things these are that we read here in your word. Father, we confess that our, our minds are unable to grasp the, the power and the glory and the majesty that will overwhelm us when we see Jesus once again. And so, Lord, prepare us for that day. As we prepare for that day, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. We thank you and we praise you and we give you glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.